Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Randy Layton, a man who has worked with many, many musicians over the years and even had his own record label, Alternative Records. On this episode, Randy will share some memories on folks like the 77s, Steve Scott, Daniel Amos, Keith Green, Robert Vaughn, Second Chapter of Acts, and a few more. In addition, we'll talk Christianity in regards to how faith should inform art and a little about Randy's deteriorating health and how that plays out in his daily life. But we start off by me posing the question to Randy, how did this whole musical adventure begin? I would answer the question by just going back to the fact that I grew up you know, around music and around professional musicians, and you know, that was just always there. And it was always present. So it was a church-based environment because my mom, in particular, was always, you know, dragging us off to, you know, church as you know, as little kids, and and uh, open door Baptist Presbyterian were all like early, early churches that we were involved with. So if, if you want to fast forward to, say, the Jesus movement, my first exposure to that would have been through my older sister. She's about four years older. And around 72, she directed me to this church that she was being sucked into, which was a local assembly of God. And it was there that for the first time, you know, that I got exposed to some of the music that was kicking around at that point in time. You know, love song, you know, Maranatha compilations, what have you. But it was also being exposed to the culture. <laughs> that was, I came along with that. So it was my first exposure to people that were, I don't know, praying in tongues or, you know, raising their hands, all these things we didn't see in the, in the churches that I grew up in. So, what did you think um, of that at first? It was attractive initially. And then, I remember very well this negative experience, which was tagging along for one of these meetings, you know, after school. And there was like in a prayer circle, the guy that was leading it was like, you know, maybe he was teaching that, that the gift of praying in tongues, for example, was something that everyone should have. Like, this is available to everybody. So we're just going to go around and just pray that each of you gets, gets a spiritual gift if you don't already have it. And... <laughs> So it comes around to me, and of course, I'm not there, you know. I mean, I'm exploring this stuff, but I'm not, at this point, certainly enamored with that gift, and I was a little uncomfortable with something being put on the spot. So I remember just kind of making something up, and they were like, oh, praise God, you got the gift. And I went, <laughs> okay. So I remember kind of dropping out. It did my rebellion thing for a couple years, but I kept getting around people that were in this culture, not specifically evangelical, but just, you know, part of various, you know, church groups because my parents continued to be involved in local churches. At the same time, I'm exploring all kinds of things that are not Christian-based culture things, (laughs) you know? So whether that's, you know, reading books by people who certainly weren't in that zone or exploring film or exploring... um, 
drugs or what have you. I mean, I just went through a period of where I'm juggling like a belief in God, but I'm also exploring all this other stuff. And it wasn't until I came back to it uh, in the late 70s, there were a couple of guys who were coming to our school and they'd had this class and my girlfriend at the time wanted to go and I kind of like, okay, sure. And then we both had the thought like, you know, we'll just fool these guys. We'll just pretend that we're done with this stuff and we'll just go. You know, it's something to do. We lived in a very small town. There wasn't a lot to do anyway. And funny enough, we got kind of sucked into it. And, and eventually, by the end of that school year, I had an experience that was pretty powerful. And I wound up, you know, getting saved or resaved or however you want to phrase it. And that, that started the journey. And, and, you know, more seriously. And what it also did, interestingly enough, was put me around immediately around people that were into the arts and things like that. And so, uh, and because I was already sort of predisposed to that, I just got really early exposure to a lot of things that you maybe not typically would have been exposed to, but, you know. So it was just an, an interesting period. As a baby Christian, I'm, I'm suddenly helping to put on shows like, you know, Rose Band before they had the first album out or DA, you know, early in their career and things like that. So. Then I found myself moving to Eugene, where I immediately got sucked into, um, I mean, voluntarily. I became part of, uh, you know, Christian commune culture. So I uh, belonged to things like Shiloh, which is part of Calvary Chapel. And there were a couple other things that I belonged to that were similar. And it was just living with a bunch of uh, similar Christian hippies, as you might imagine, it in, in the 70s. It seems like a million years ago in a lot of ways. I mean, not just time wise, but also just in terms of, who I was then and I think who I am now, but, but uh, it was, a, you know, it was a really, really interesting period. I've heard you on other interviews talk about your views on the music industry, or I should say the Christian music industry and why some of it works, uh, why some of it doesn't. So I want to ask a, a couple things about, especially the early movement. It's my understanding that a lot of those in the early Jesus movement either hadn't grown up in the church or at least had strayed, and so were more influenced by like 1960s culture. But the criticism of the Jesus music industry or CCM afterwards, that it, it seemed to cut itself off from the, the culture at large. And so often they were just singing to themselves. But I, I'm sure that wasn't their intention. Do you think that assessment is true, first of all? If so, how did it happen by your reckoning? Well, I'm very aware of that criticism. I think it was very important in terms of the earliest music that people found a way to connect to each other through it. You know, that as a baby Christian, you could throw on, you know, a love song or, you know, or an Norman record or whatever and identify immediately with what's going on. I know that there was also a strong need to feel like you need to evangelize through that music as well and reach out, but I don't know, and, and I know a lot of people were being affected by going to those concerts, which were more like, you know, church services, really, in terms of the, of the intentionality. Yeah, and people were being saved, and there was a whole bunch of stuff, you know, going on. It was, I mean, I saw some pretty powerful things during that era, but... 
when I started, you know, joining the the communities and I started looking more more to music that was coming out, one of the things I became aware of is that there was a very strong emphasis on Jesus is coming back really soon. And a lot of guys were trying to pick out exactly when that would be. I remember when the Pope came over for the first time to America, that was like a big sign. He was going to announce he was the Antichrist and he turned up, which obviously didn't happen. Um, but all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I was convinced by, I remember being convinced by the end of 1978 that I probably didn't need to have a job because I was going to be raptured. I mean, there was, there was all this stuff that was going on. I think that's one of the things that I really haven't heard a, a lot of artists talk about from that period is kind of owning up to what I think was, was a very, I mean, it's a very common thing, right? right. I mean, a lot of people were, were doing that. But in the end, when that didn't happen, I'll watch a lot of people go, well, if that didn't happen, then what else is not you know, valid. I mean, we didn't do a very good job uh, going, you know, there's a little more to this than the rapture. And while by the end of my time in these communities, there were, there became a big swing the other direction towards this extreme version of discipleship where you, you couldn't go around the corner without, you know, two people with you and you know, all this other stuff. I mean, we could have an hour conversation on that part. You know, that had a very different effect on, on, on people as well. And, and so I, I think in the end, you wind up singing to yourself because music is a, is a conduit. In the end, it's not what saves you, you know, and it doesn't bring you to an understanding of, of why maybe you would like to sign up to have the Lord be, be your Savior. You know, it's just a tool. So I, I think it all kind of, uh, you know, imploded on itself because there was a, a lack of, of leadership that could take people from the early buy-in to what it means then to live out a long life as a Christian and handle all the things that life throws at you and have the tools to do it. Uh, life's really tough. And I, I, I just remember a lot of people um, kind of sold the idea of, of like, you know, once got it got into my life, everything kind of just lifted, and all my problems went went away. And for a period, it might feel that, but then, you know, there's going to be other realities that come in. It did for me, where it starts challenging the things that you were taught. And so, I just remember really by by the early '80s, I was really not feeling very good by about the matter in which we were as a Jesus culture movement. We, we had treated people that, that had come, you know, come to us. And a lot of things I did as, as a street evangelist during that period that I, I am embarrassed about now, <laughs> and things like that. But, I, you know, I, I just worked with what, what I knew at, at, at this point. I went through a period that was very important and that I finally decided to kind of throw everything away consciously and not so much go, well, I don't know that she's, you know, that God is who he says he is or, that Jesus is his son, or you know, you know, the real basic theological tenets of Christianity. But all the other stuff that kind of went around it, I just said, well, I'm gonna, you know, throw this out, and I'm just going to start from scratch again, see what I come up with. And it was a long process, but I remember, as part of that process, a lot of what I previously believed, you know, I came back to. But there are a lot of things that I I wound up uh, ditching or having a different take on, and. I still find myself doing that today. I find my vision of, or my understanding rather of what it's like to be a Christian evolving still. 
which I think it should be. You know, the basic stuff should be there or you're in trouble, but then what that means to how you affect the world around you and, and those sort of things, that should always be, be evolving. If it's not, then I think you're stuck in a place that's not particularly healthy. I mean, I do admire people. There are people I know that are like, you know, I got born again and then it, everything was great and I just haven't had any issues and, you know, I just believe the Bible and everything it says and it's all literal and it's all, you know, this and that. And they're happy and they're right in that zone and they've never had to go through anything very difficult. Those people do exist, but most people that I know are, are not like that. Right. And, and I identify more with those guys. <laughs> so you want to go back to Egypt Where it's warm and secure Are you sorry about the one-way ticket When you thought you were sure you Now Randy will talk about some of the musicians He worked with over the years Starting off with Keith Green And eventually it will all lead to Some stories about his alternative records label Well, Keith Green, again, was one of the very first uh, Acts that I helped almost said produce. Well, producing the sense of putting on a show. At one point, I, I had moved to Reading and became part of another, you know, Jesus Outreach thing there, who put on shows, and that was one of the first ones I, I was involved with. They had also done done uh, DA as well. Yeah, Keith was, was interesting because um, he was an intense dude, <laughs> as you might expect, but he also had a great sense of humor and was also very easy to work with in a lot of ways. I mean, I just remember, you know, we put on the show at, at this huge auditorium and we're just asking him, so what do you expect out of this in terms of, you know, a fee or honorarium or, you know, love offering or whatever terminology got thrown around in those days? He was just like, you know, whatever you guys want to do. He didn't give us any percentage. You know, there was no heavy contract, none of that stuff. So, of course, we ought to given him more than I think we would have given it anyone else <laughs> because of that. He was probably smart in that way. Because I just remember passing around buckets of, of, of these empty, you know, KFC chicken buckets around the whole place. Just tons of cash. And, but, you know, we also felt like that was going to a good place and a good cost. I had seen him before that. I had seen him perform at Jesus Northwest back in 70... Eight, I think that was a really intense show in in the sense that no matter how together you felt as a Christian, suddenly you know, like you felt like you weren't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you just had a way of, of, of back then of, of sort of making you feel like you know you haven't sold yourself out enough. And they were all like crying and towards the end, like uh, you know, forgive us for you know. I remember at some point he said, I, "I don't want to sing anymore. I just want to preach." And then, like the last you know forty minutes of the show was just him talking. There was there was no more songs. You know, you know, it was a heavy thing. As a lot of us might remember, and you know, Keith was a pretty divisive figure in the industry because he challenged the idea eventually of being part of you know, a Christian company and going to the bookstores and being marketed and all those things. And he wanted to be out, outside of that. And he wanted his music to, to connect more directly with the audience, whether that was sending them free records or any number of ideas that he had. He was not a perfect guy. He had a lot of flaws and, and pissed off a lot of people. But when I think of him, I, I think his heart was in the right place. And I think by the time he died, he was maturing 
to a place where he's become a little more understanding on how he could work with the various elements of the, of the industry that he was uh, fighting so hard against. And also, Keith, you know, the, the laws of gravity do apply to you, and you can't put up all these people in one, you know, a small plane and not have an issue. I mean, I remember just being horrified when I saw the news because I knew a number of those people because we, we worked with, with Lassie Ministries in those days. So it was just, yeah, that was a difficult thing. But, you know, in, in, in the end, it was a, knowing him was, as much as I got to know him, was a good thing. I wound up having disagreements with him. Not in person, but just down the road, in terms of how he approached things. Um, I didn't agree with all the things the last days ministries wanted to put out there in their tracks and things like that. But, you know, that's life. You're you're going to have that. And I felt the same way about the second chapter of Acts, who I adored, worked with also. I also wasn't in total agreement in, in terms of how they viewed uh, people trying to, you know, make a living in in the industry. They could be pretty judgmental about a lot of people. But you know, I love their music. I mean, I, I still love Annie Herring, and I you know, and, and I I remember sitting around with 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 a couple uh, female friends of mine before I got married, and and we'd all sit around and, and pretend to be these guys. <laughs> so I was Matthew Ward. Uh, although I was stuck with the with the baritone range, so I couldn't hear some of the high notes he was doing. It was kind of frustrating, but but it was fun. Another early show that we did, which is actually documented on a there's a DA official DA bootleg site where you can download shows. And one of those shows that we did is actually on that list because I had the soundboard for that. This was the 77 show. So they were still very much in their country phase, but they were just starting to do a couple of songs that would wind up on or in this disc eventually. Those were guys that by the time they, they got into their HD era, that I began to go, okay, so these are people I can I can relate to. I understand what Terry is, is chopping against because you know he came up with, with you know through the whole Calvary Chapel thing, as I did in part, and I began to see that he was beginning to sort of move away from that line of thinking as as his material developed and his worldview began to open up a bit more. So so over the years I, I was fortunate to get to know, you know, some of those guys and, and Terry and they were a huge influence I, I I think on the things I was working on as as a label. And I understand real quickly that before Alternative was a label it was a millware company for a number of years where I exported and imported Christian music from all over the world and was really the first person to even think of that. That started back in 1980, late 79, I think, actually. I wanted to find out if I could connect with other Christian artists from all over the place, and that's kind of what we wound up doing. It just kind of morphed into a, a, a label once I... A, got burned out on, on the Millwater part, and B, began to work with the people at Exit and at the warehouse, and, and that kind of birthed the label idea. So that's where you get the Sevens and Peacock and, you know, the Steve Scott, you know, steering me that, that direction. I just got to get it Especially Steve Scott, because 
I had always been, I've been aware of him as early as the late 70s because I was reading things like Innervatex, you know, and different things he was appearing in. I've been writing poetry myself since I was in grade school. Did that through high school, and by the time I was in high school, I was writing like these long-form abstract things that my teachers would go, I'm getting a headache. This is 20 pages long. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what you mean, but, you know. So that was a big part of, of my makeup was, again, you know, the arts were a big part of my makeup even before really becoming a Christian or, or taking it seriously, but also, but that journey also continued after that. And so, you know, early on, I was reading a lot of the beat guys like Burroughs and Coffin and McClure and but after I was converted, it was, you know, John Donne and Chesterton and reading Thomas Merton, what guys like Hans Rickmacher and, you know, Francis Schaeffer had to say. I also had a big interest in, in, in painting. So I was really into things like uh, the Depressionistic period, uh, the art of Florence or early Renaissance, uh, later guys like Marshall Gall. As a little kid, I just read everything I could get my hands on. So it's it just kind of, you know, I'd read the ketchup bottle, just read something off the table, you know, and it just kind of kept going. You know, even as a little kid, I, I mean, like, I, this memory I have of sneaking out my sister's copy of Eric Frome's uh, The Art of Loving, which is a ridiculous book to read when you're 12, but, you know, that's how starved I was to read things that were past my grade level. In any event, that, that was all part of my makeup. So when Steve came along and I heard his first record, Love in the Western World, I just fell in love. Like, this is totally the kind of guy that you know, I, I want to work with, you know, or, or I, I want to, uh, you know, emulate. All my messages come back to me I can tell that they're unread And you don't return my phone calls Was it something we left unsaid? I've been aware of him earlier through Larry Norman because he'd worked with Larry for an, an unreleased record called uh, Moving Pictures. There was a period of time in, in which, through Larry, I was becoming aware of British guys like Steve and like uh, Steve Turner and people like that. So I was getting my hands on like Steve Turner stuff, you know, Tonight We Fake Love and, you know, stuff like that. When I started the label, it was, I want to work with guys like that. When Steve went, went to exit after the movie picture thing didn't come out. And then he got, you know, word exit to actually put out a record on him, which is Love in the Western World. And, and then obviously he influenced uh, or wrote songs for other people, namely the Scratch Band, who became the 77s. And a lot of their early material live was Steve Scott's songs. A lot of them then went back to the earlier Norman sessions. You know, but then there was a second album called Emotional Taurus that they recorded that A&M was going to distribute that didn't come out. And then there was another album called Rise, which didn't come out either. That was supposed to come out through Island. By this time, I was working with Exit. There's a whole other story that I think I talked about with Aaron Smith. But I started working with, with Exit um, to help them get their music out to uh, both Christian alternative radio as well as college radio. And then at some point, it's just like, well, if I'm listening to me, if you guys aren't going to put out this stuff, why don't I put it out? And that's how the label started. I, I just said, 
you know, no one's going to do it. Can we work out a deal where I use all these masters and I put them out? And, you know, and that's how it started. That's the other thing that I'll, I'd say I'm proud of is that Alternative was really, really set the template for indie labels later to go, oh, we don't have to get a deal with a major company. We can do it ourselves. You know, before Michael Knotts or before Charlie Peacock or West Coast Diaries or a lot of these things, I was really the first or one of the first people to come up with this idea that, you know, we can just take the art back ourselves and put out our own stuff and actually get paid. I mean, Steve Scott saw way more money from that first Lost Horizon record I did than he ever saw from words. You know, the same thing with, with Mike. I think when I did the EP thing, which turned into uh, More Miserable, I wanna build you up You wanna tear you down You're floating up for the third time, baby Looks like you've already done He saw a lot more from that directly than he ever saw from any Southern's album up, up to that point. So it was, again, pre-internet, but it was, a, you know, it was a lot of bank looking and a lot of newsletters and mailing lists and all that stuff, but, you know, but we got it out there. That's how that started. And as the label evolved over time, I began to also think about, okay, we can we can be Christians and we can be artists, but we don't necessarily have to do albums that are evangelically oriented, which is how I got to work with, you know, Two Pound Planet, who, who half of those guys weren't, weren't Christians. And Robert Bond's Riverhouse album, you know, was not anything like he'd done before. You know, it's done by a believer, and there's a worldview that is a Christian worldview that can be found in there, but it was made primarily to be something that was commercially oriented. So I was moving that direction towards the end of the label's life as my own philosophies about those things kind of evolved. Faster, drive faster, can't you please? There's a trick in the sound of the wheels I thought I heard I heard you talk about when you were becoming aware of Christian music being made overseas uh, by such groups as uh, After the Fire and some others that you mentioned. I just can't remember right now. Those being the days before the internet, how in the world did they end up on your radar? So this goes back to forming alternative records as a mail order company with that very idea of, you know, we're not seeing this stuff over here. I mean, ACF was on, was on TBS, but there were... A bunch of groups that were making records like, you know, Garth Hewitt and, oh, I'm going to forget all these names, but, you know, Predators and the Techno Twins and, uh, you know, all these all these groups that you, hear, you would hear about, like, say, going to Greenbelt and performing. Oh, but the okay. records were released over here. And, uh, you know, the Wild the Wine Band. It's all starting to come back a little bit. One, I was subscribing to things that were put out over there. So that's how I got to learn about a lot of that. And then, and because again, I had this insatiable thing of like, must learn all things about music and that, and that became part of it. But also because I, I became, uh, for lack of a better phrase, penthouse to people that were involved in Christian music overseas and uh, not just England, but Germany and, you know, Holland and Sweden and places like that. So it, it started this ongoing conversation between all these guys. And they were hungry as well for things that they weren't getting over there. So it was just trying to put those two things together. That was the birth of all that. I mean, that's how I became aware of it. I began to think that these guys 
are doing exactly what I think we should be doing over here. They were further along the, the curve, I think, musically and artistically than I think we were. Uh, so it fueled my interest in, in what people like who were involved in, you know, the Techno Twins. I, I go back to Steve and, and Bev and who were terribly influential to me. something I, I, I was fascinated with and began to relate more to that than I began to relate to what was happening over here. I have less time for Petra. I have more time for what was going on over there. And so that's how that started. Uh, yeah, I mean, these days, you can dial any of this stuff on the Internet. It's easy to find. It's, it's quick, and, and I feel very jealous. So I had to put all this work into it. And a lot of money because in those days, you know, you phone up people overseas and then you give your three hundred dollar phone bill, <laughs> which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. And um, you know, talking to Australia and getting the phone bill, but that was the only avenue I had at that point. And we wrote letters and we did all kinds of weird stuff. From Brazil to Paris, my baby took a ride. Went down Oklahoma, fell in love that night. Did you ask him the lyric? In your interview of Aaron Smith, you covered like the history of alternative records pretty well, I think. But I, I have a handful of questions, which you can answer one or all or what have you. But if you were to think of a proudest moment of alternative records, what would have that been? Do you think you accomplished what you wanted to accomplish with the label? Was it all worth it? Uh, and do you these days ever get feedback or evidence that your work was appreciated? Yeah, a couple of those are pretty loaded questions. But <laughs> <laughs> do my best. Proudest moment. I, I mean, there's a few of them. I, I, I think one was getting a, a lot of letters. I mean, I used to get a lot of mail of people just going, you know, I took a chance on Lost Rise and I didn't know what what I was getting into. It changed my life. You know, there was. Uh, a story of this this woman that her her father was was suicidal, pretty down. But she found a couple songs of Lost Rising that she played for him, and that became something that they bonded over. So there are things you can throw out there, and you have no idea what how it's going to affect people. It's just, I mean, I was only like the conduit to kind of get it there. I mean, Steve obviously you know created the art, but just to be part of that in some small way, that was. You know, that was pretty cool. Proudest moment? I, the one thing I can tell you is that when the Sevens album, and this is probably covered during the Aaron Smith Hour, but when uh, the Island album came out for the Sevens, I had a pre-release copy. I took that to the local AOR station here, which at that time was number two AOR in the state of Oregon. And the music PD guy just went bonkers over it. And it wound up going four cuts deep on the album, three in heavy rotation. You know, they all hit number one. And this is all happening with the idea that most of the listeners just thought of them as like, you know, they're on the same label as you two, and this is cool, you know, act on... You know, I mean, there was there was no connecting that they were a Christian band. I mean, they didn't have that. Uh, what's the word I want to use? Mm -hmm. Phrase. I mean, they they weren't 
being cocooned in that sense. You know, they were able to just sell the music on its own merits and have it be popular, very, very popular to the, to, to the point that Island and myself and Exit all decided to pony up money and, and bring them here to a place called the Wall Hall, which is a major venue here, and it filled it. And I'd say three quarters of the people that were there or more had no idea that they were a Christian band. I mean, they did radio interviews here, they did in stores, you know, the record store that I happen to also own and run, which is a, a regular, you know, commercial store. You know, we were selling that along with the cure and everything else. And it was just going out the door. And the show was was amazing and fantastic. Fantastic. There were girls screaming like it was Beatles of Shay up front. It was ridiculous. I think during the show or after the show, people became more aware that they had that background. But, you know, but it just went over really, really and, and, it, and they were great. And we brought them back in the next year to a very you know, similar reaction, even without a, a new album out at that point. And all this happened here in Eugene, Oregon. It didn't happen practically anywhere else. But it gave you an, an idea that that really could have been possible. Had Island, well, first of all, had the Exit Island deal actually been more of an Island deal than an Exit Slash Island deal, what I mean by that is, is that essentially Exit is paying Island to distribute and promote the act, whereas uh, Island, if they had just signed them directly and said, you know, we're going to push you guys or we're going to push our other acts, would have had a lot more money invested and would have, you know, would have put them out on tour, done videos, you know, the things that people did back then. And I think that if they had done that, they would have taken off and done what they really wanted to do, I think, which was to reach a larger audience. But because it was a, what I call a P&D thing or a publishing and distribution deal, Island only had so much incentive to do much with it because they had other acts, you know, like you 2 and, and obviously, but, you know, other ones as well, that they had a lot more money invested in directly. So, of course, they're going to throw more of their efforts into those acts. But here, Eugene, at that little moment in time, we were able to kind of show that if you just exposed it and they got the airplay, that people would respond in a way that was pretty magical. And that could have happened on a, large, on a much larger scale. It, it just didn't happen. So that's one of my proudest moments. I mean, I remember when they came out and I'm sitting there in the audience and you know, I just started crying practically. You know, it was just like, you know, it was amazing to me that it went from me walking into the office going, you should hear this record, to this point. You know, I remember talking to the head of Island, and, or not the head of Island, but the head of Island Retail, when I was trying to get the record into the stores. Uh, you know, this is the Allen album, because it was, nationally, it was getting a lot of chart play, but you couldn't buy the album, because the retail end was lagging behind. And, because again, it wasn't a priority. And so, I, because I was a music buyer for this chain, I just put on my conflict of interest suit, you know, got on the phone, you know, talked to this guy, and he goes, look, I don't care. He said, all, all that group is ever going to be is just a Christian group, so it doesn't matter, essentially. I remember being shocked because we were all kind of operating under the idea that they were going to treat the Sevens like any other band and market them that way and that sort of thing. So I remember going on to Mary Neely after that conversation and go, well, listen to this, you know, and I shared that 
story, and that became the end of our of exiting the island deal. Little moments would have been just the pure fact that I was able to give the artist back a lot more money than they'd ever seen previously just being an indie because we found a new way to do things and, and things like that. And then again, you know, that's what I first talked about where people are, are just giving you personal feedback on what that music meant to them. So was it worth it? Yeah. Did the Rubber House project by itself nearly sink the whole thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but up until that point, Everything got made money and, and done well. But songs from, from the River House is another story. In those nights, when well, not pretty ones just leave. Let's get to the heavy stuff. I, I want to talk about your Christianity and some things. But first, kind of set this up. Do you mind talking about your current health issues? Yeah, so uh, health troubles. Well, I, I've, I've had them in some form or another almost all my life. I just was not made a strong human being physically. But it got pretty serious when I was diagnosed with um, multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer and bone cancer, uh, which does not have a cure, essentially. It's a, it's a terminal diagnosis when they hand it to you, and they give you about a three- to five-year window. Although that window can change either because things speed up or, or because you don't really kick into a particular stage for a long time and then that time can extend, which is kind of where I'm at at the moment because I was diagnosed in 2016 and I'm still here. It's really hard because it's a fairly young age statistically to be diagnosed with that. And then secondarily, there were just so many things I wanted to do that I feel like I'm not going to be able to really get done because of that. Does that change my understanding of what it means to be a Christian? I'm always working on that. It's good to pray and ask for healing in all forms, including physical. And a lot of people are, are also doing that on my behalf. But, you know, daily I'm dealing with pain and other issues, and it's kind of where it be done right now. So I can say that I'm, I'm struggling with depression over that. You got other days were better, and I manage okay. I just realized that I may not be healed, and that's not in the plan. Or I might be. It just depends on what the plan is. Um, I, I just need to keep myself in, in communication with God, and, and I often wonder if the uh, Terry Taylor line about, you know, should you really reveal anything when I just misunderstand it applies more than I thought it ever did. There's a lot more that I want to do, and I, I don't know if I am going to get to most of it. I'm hoping somehow I do, but I need to be thankful for you know, so much that's already happened in my life. Um, you know, but I mean, a dissolution that I would like more and more quality than what I'm currently getting. But it's not really a solitary experience either uh, because, you know, a lot of people go through this and they're much more dire versions of it than I, I am right now. That's kind of what I have to say on that topic. reason why it interests me is I feel like most of us, we live as if we're going to spiritually we live as as if we're going to not have to worry about our mortality until maybe in our 80s or 70s or something and yeah and i feel like people when they get older of course they got a lot of wisdom by that point since they probably have made so many mistakes and understand how the world works a lot better but i also think um we take a lot for granted so that's why i was wanted to ask that question like did anything immediately change in your outlook once you got that diagnosis 
No, I, I mean, you know, I've been working on trying to get projects done, get my kids' copies of everything I worked on, you know, um, trying to downsize stuff. And my wife isn't overwhelmed with, you know, the enormous collection of musically related things that are here. And I'll probably, there's no way I'm, I'm going to get to all of it. I mean, but I'm trying. But I didn't think, as a lot of people do when they get diagnosed early, earlier in life, that I would come up against this mortality issue so quickly. I thought, yeah, by the time I'm 70, you know, that would be the time to start getting rid of everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. Not, oh, I'm 60 and, uh, <laughs> you know, there's this reality. So, yeah, it's, it's a little, um, it's, it's difficult. One of the problems I have is, is that because of the treatments and everything else, I mean, I'm just a lot weaker than I used to be. So, so it's a lot harder for me to go through records and things like that and, and find, find ways to deal with them. Uh, it makes me wish I still collected butterflies or scam, but, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not, not the direction I went, unfortunately. So uh, there's all these books, there's, I know, 6,000 albums, there's probably that many CDs, that does include all the 78s and cylinders and everything else I have sitting around. So it's a little overwhelming. I mean, literally, there are days I walk, I walk into the office and look at the archives and just go, I can't deal with this. It's hard. Is there a scripture or concept that fuels up your understanding of, as Christians, what are we supposed to be doing? I don't know. I think Romans 6 or something. But, but otherwise... You know, without getting into a specific, you know, scripture, and and I'm, and I'm, I thought the question was probably being approached from the from the uh, artistic point of view. So, if I'm going to approach it that way, then to borrow from you know Hans Rickmacher, um, art doesn't need justification. Artists don't really need that, like you know, taxi drivers or computer programmers or you know any any vocation. If they are great evangelists and performers. It doesn't uh, help the customer very much that needs a plumbing job done uh, any good. So for people in the arts, we, we have to do the best with the talents that God gave us. But it's a disservice if we you know, evangelize through music and do a lousy job of, of making music. Then we're not reflective of the, of the creator who created us and, and gave us these gifts. I understand that we may be given the grace to evangelize and make great music to go along with that. Since we're talking about music, or, or we may be making good records, make people happy, and are reflective of the talents that God has given us, but for like most of us, there are other opportunities to share our faith and what that means, and whether that's, I don't know, working with the homeless, or donating to food banks, um, giving blood, whatever you feel best connects you to, to people as a Christian. I've always said this, which is not every Christian who's a musician needs to make a Christian record, and I think we understand that more than we used to, but and fewer are, are called to be musical evangelists. So it's a long way of saying that when I made records with artists who are Christians, it was important that, that the music being created was at a high level and wasn't afraid to ask questions of themselves or the audience that took it out of the typical uh, you know, CCM zone or, or themes. Uh, and that the longer I, I did that, more important it became to me as well to make us available outside of that zone, which was getting commercial distribution deals and working with bands who weren't all Christian members like Two Pound Planet 
or an album like songs from the river house uh which would not be mistaken by you know by anyone for a typical christian album but i still thought that was a, a valid statement within the context of how i approached the company Before we get out of here, I'd highly recommend checking out Aaron A. Train Smith's podcast Intersect on Intertalk Radio, especially episodes 15 and 16, on which Randy Layton also guest on, telling some additional stories about his music career and faith. And that said, if you feel like hanging around the woodpile a little longer, we had Aaron Smith himself on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 161, to talk about his days drumming with the Temptations, 77s, Bridge Mullins, and some other folk. And episode 197 is also a relevant one, featuring John J. Thompson of TrueTunes.com talking about DeGarmo, Key, and the Altar Boys. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.